0: It's Wednesday, February 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Mask mandates are beginning to fall in states across the country, particularly when it comes to schools. Democratic governors in Connecticut, Delaware, New Jersey, and Oregon are lifting statewide rules, leaving the final say to school districts on how to proceed. Some still want more guidance from the CDC, but the trend is shifting away from the mandates. Laura Meckler, national education writer at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, the Biden administration wants more students to become butchers. It's an effort to scale up local and regional meat processing, foster competition in the industry. Training workers would help address labor shortages, but some say it could be a difficult sell getting students into an industry with so much manual labor done mostly by immigrants at the moment. Jimena Bustillo, reporter at Politico, joins us for more on these agricultural programs. Finally, some states are putting forth proposals that would accept Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as acceptable tax payments, bringing them closer to the mainstream. Proposals in Wyoming and Arizona are in the early stages and could be a benefit for retailers, but there will most likely be some legal hurdles. Ben Schreckinger, national political correspondent at Politico, joins us for how states are considering accepting digital currency. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: I think where cases are low, where there is no variant of concern that causes severe disease and where vaccination rates are high, I think it's the right time to start the discussion.
0: Joining us now is Laura Meckler, National Education Writer at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Hey, good to be with you. Let's talk about masks in schools. It's been a very contentious issue for a long time now. Uh you know, all the ups and downs, roller coaster ride that we've been with uh school reopenings because of the pandemic. But right now what we're seeing is uh, a number of democratic governors, we're seeing it in Connecticut, Delaware, New Jersey and Oregon making the switch. They're saying they plan on lifting the statewide rules. The local rules still belong to the school district, so they'll ultimately have to decide what to do there. But just kind of this shift in attitude about masks and living with the virus now. Uh, So, Laura, tell us what we're seeing with it.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, we've seen big divides in the country over this issue, mostly this school year. So, you know, last school year, the big fight was, do we open schools or not? But pretty much all the schools that were open had masks. Everybody was wearing masks. But when we saw the beginning of this school year back in August, we saw right from the get-go that there was a big, big fight over whether kids should have to wear masks or not. And what we had was we had 10 or 12 Democratic-led states that were requiring it statewide. And then you had a close to an equal number of Republican states that were trying to essentially ban mask mask mandates, going the other direction, saying school districts are not allowed to require mask mandates. And then in the middle, a bunch of states that left it up to the districts. So You know, it's always that all that pattern that we saw as part of what we've seen throughout this entire pandemic. Right. Which is like Democrats in favor of more restrictions, more safety measures, Republicans, less more sort of normalcy. Well, what we saw this week was. Democrats, as you said, in those four states. And I think there will be more to come saying, you know, we're lifting these statewide rules. It's up to you districts. We don't have the same kind of emergency that we had before. You get to decide, do you want to require masks or not? And um, we'll see again what those districts decide. But clearly some of those districts are going to decide that they don't want to require them.
0: Right. And a big part of this conversation throughout the whole thing was this fight between You know, a lot of parents that said that, you know, it was too much for their kids. They didn't want them to have to do it. And then teachers unions, teacher unions played a huge part in this conversation. And they still do where, you know, they're saying we're glad we're seeing case rates go down. But we want to approach this very cautiously.
2: Yeah, teachers unions have definitely been on the side of caution throughout this entire conversation. Their view is, okay. yes, we do need an off ramp from this masking, but it should be based on metrics. It should be based on data. It shouldn't be based on politics. So whether these decisions today are being based on politics or on data, I guess, depends on who you ask. It clearly is in the interest of these Democratic governors politically to not be seen as essentially, you know, being overly restrictive. But, yeah, so the teachers unions, though, are not full fledged like you know, hair on fire over this, but they which they have been at times. They're a little more like on um, the kind of like, well, we should be moving more slowly.
0: I think that a lot of them are, are looking for more guidance from the CDC, which I, I think the CDC currently still says, you know, masks is uh, it helps protect people uh, and keep transmission rates low. So they're, they're still looking for more guidance, even beyond what yeah. governors are saying.
2: Well, that's the thing that's so interesting about this, right, is that like these governors are moving ahead even without the CDC. Like the CDC rules still say that universal masking is an important, maybe the most important feature uh, next to vaccines of COVID protection in schools. So they are definitely all in still on on masking. And yet we see these states moving forward and saying, you know what, it's not a requirement. Districts, you do what you want to do.
0: What are we seeing as far as timelines then with these four states? When are they starting to lift their mandates?
2: So in Connecticut, I believe it will be at the end of this month, the end of February. Um, the other states are sort of throughout March. So by the end of March, um, we'll see a lot of places in in this country that haven't had the ability to make this decision, having that responsibility now to make the call. Right. So. And I think that this links up a little bit with the CDC, right? Like it would be useful for these districts trying to suddenly now they've got to make this decision if they had a little more guidance.
0: Yeah. And that's that's been one of the big pitfalls throughout the entire pandemic. The overarching guidance has not always been there. It's always been very fluid to the frustration of a lot of people. And especially with these school districts trying to make that right decision, you know, they're going to err on the side of caution mostly and say, let's keep these mask mandates. So they still have the final say, despite these governors taking away the mandates.
2: For sure. But I think we will see districts that lift it also. And the thing is then, of course, then the decision gets passed on to the parents and the students. And I think what we've seen in a lot of places where masks are not required, really nobody, very few people will really wear them. The the pressure quickly becomes and the preferences quickly become to not wearing masks. So if you don't require them, don't just assume, well, it'll be a mix, half and half. Most people still will. Just a few won't. Like, I think in a lot of places, I talked to a teacher in Utah where the districts are not allowed. Allowed to have mask mandates and they do not have one and she said that like no one wears a mask because she does but <laughs> right. like nobody else
0: yeah well as we said that's the shift that's where we're trending we'll see how it all plays out laura right. meckler national education writer at the washington post thank you very much for joining us
2: thanks for having me
1: And so, what he is saying is that there's not a lot of competition amongst these meat packers, amongst even smaller meat packers, to get to compete against them to keep prices low for consumers. And so, the strategy is to build up small and regional food supply chains, particularly meat packing supply chains. Joining
0: us now is Jimena Bustillo, reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Jimena.
1: Thank you so much for having me
0: want to talk about an interesting effort that's being backed by the Biden administration to get more U.S. students to become butchers and get into the meatpacking industry. There's a lot of money coming from the uh, American Rescue Plan to fund some of these programs. Most notably, there's one uh, I think you profiled in your article in Arizona. The administration and people that want to get these programs going say it's going to foster a lot of competition much needed competition in the industry. So Jimena, walk us through some of this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's no secret that the Biden administration has really been trying to hit hard on monopolies, on anti-competitive practices. It's one of the things he credits to rising prices, uh, rising inflation costs missing items in grocery stores that you might see in your hometown. And so one of the ways that he is tackling all of these issues is to go after what people call the big four meatpacking companies. So that's Tyson Foods, JBS, Cargill, and National Beef, to name a few specifically for beef. And so what he is saying is that there's not a lot of competition amongst these meat packers amongst even smaller meat packers to get to compete against them to keep prices low for consumers. And so the strategy is to build up small and regional food supply chains, particularly meat packing supply chains, in order to keep costs low, keep rancher profits higher and really kind of stabilize that. And that's a movement that we'd been seeing before the pandemic, but especially during the pandemic, when we saw no chicken on the shelf or no steaks on the shelf really came into the purview.
0: Yeah. Those four uh, big companies, those meat processing companies control 80% of meat processing nationwide. So that's a, a huge chunk. And as you mentioned, the pandemic, right? When a lot of the big four were closing down because of COVID infections and all that. It was tough for these ranchers to sell their animals. They had nowhere to go. So if there was a more robust local and regional setup going, maybe they could have uh, been pumping some more products out yeah. to, to the consumer. So definitely a big concern, but talk to me a little bit about the concern of students even wanting to get into this. Uh, you mentioned the article meat processing is not necessarily a low skilled job. There's a lot that goes into butchering an animal properly, to be displayed properly, to be distributed properly. There's really a lot that goes into it, years to really know how to do it effectively Mm -hmm. on an animal. So there is a lot of skill that goes with it, but is the students wanting to go for these tech jobs and other, other things like that, would they want to get into this industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a mixed bag. You know, at first glance, when I first started reporting out this story, a lot of folks I talked to were like, Are you kidding me? Why would somebody spend four years in school? to go work at a local meat processor where there's probably not a lot of upward mobility and very low wages sometimes. But it doesn't always have to be that way. Yes, there are those four-year programs, like, for example, the University of Idaho, that does create those technical, those material skills that then do employ regional meat processing facilities and are kind of what the Biden administration wants to do. But then there are other schools that are creating certificates. So one semester programs or two semester programs where students don't have to spend even two full years at a community college. They can attend a trade school or they can just get a certificate and get the skills that they need. So there's definitely a lot of buried schools of thought on how to get these students involved. But a lot of schools also are very focused on getting their students into tech jobs, managerial jobs, marketing jobs, government jobs that are not necessarily the people working physically on the animal.
0: You did mention some of these schools and some of these programs. What do those programs look like? Uh, You you mentioned certificate programs, but what are they learning? What are the students uh, hoping to accomplish in there?
1: Yeah. I mean, these programs are pretty creative. In a lot of instances, schools might actually have in-house processing facilities. And that's one of the things that these grant programs are aimed at doing is also helping schools to buy equipment or build these in-house processing facilities. So local ranchers from the areas can bring in their animals or local hunters can bring in their animals for the students to process. And so... Students will learn how to like on the spot process an animal, how to cut it correctly, how to salvage it correctly, how to take certain measurements to give feedback back to the rancher about whether or not their feed quality is good or water quality or anything else to do with, with raising the animal. And so that's very all encompassing yeah. and it can be taught in the classroom and is very hands on at the same time.
0: Jimena Bustillo, reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
3: And that is uh, a different kind of a cryptocurrency and one that may, may end up being more attractive for something like paying taxes than something like Bitcoin is
0: today. Joining us now is Ben Schreckinger, national political correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about cryptocurrency and what some states are starting to do, really trying to make it more official, let's say. So we have lawmakers in Wyoming and Arizona that are putting forward some proposals that would allow those states to accept the tax payments in the form of uh, digital currencies. So I think they're mostly going with Bitcoin since it's the the, the main cryptocurrency, but it's kind of a a new shift in this uh, really legitimizing cryptocurrency more and more. So tell us a little bit more about it.
3: That's right. So there are a couple of proposals that have come up in legislatures in the last week or so. The one in Arizona is a little bit broader in one sense. It would make Bitcoin legal tender. uh, And that has a, a number of implications for the ways in which the state would recognize bitcoin beyond just tax payments and then there's there's a measure in wyoming which is a little bit more narrow in that it it would apply only to sales and use taxes accepting cryptocurrencies for that purpose although in, in one sense it's more broad in that it's not limited to bitcoin and it, and it would apply to cryptocurrencies more generally
0: we've all seen the stories about how volatile cryptocurrencies are and you know the wild swings with uh, how valuable they are if things like this pass in these, in these states, wouldn't it provide a little more stability to them?
3: You know, I think it's unclear how it would affect the volatility of various cryptocurrencies. But what I can say for sure is that one critique of plans like this is that many of the most popular cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin, are quite volatile in price. And that makes them less appealing as currencies, as long as that remains the case. You know, if your dollar were to lose half of its value overnight and then double again over the course of weeks, it it would be hard to use it as a dollar. In some of these cases, and one of the groups in Wyoming in particular that's backing this proposal, they use what's called an algorithmic stablecoin. And that's a way of saying that it's a cryptocurrency that uses a a computer algorithm to maintain a constant value so that what it can buy doesn't change dramatically day to day. And that is uh, a different kind of a cryptocurrency and one that may may end up being more attractive for something like paying taxes than something like Bitcoin is today.
0: You made mention in the article how there is a lot of potential legal issues. I think specifically in Arizona is a little bit more problematic since they're saying it would be legal tender. And I guess states can't just issue their own money in that sense. So, But there could be a lot of legal challenges to things like this.
3: That's absolutely right. Uh, One legal obstacle that is often cited in, in conversations on this topic is Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution, which, as you alluded to, prevents states from minting their own money. And exactly how to interpret that, like so many parts of the Constitution, is a matter of ongoing debate. I spoke to one expert who said that he believes the Arizona proposal, because it's broader, because it's designating Bitcoin as, as legal tender, may run afoul of that constitutional provision. He also said that he suspects that the Wyoming proposal, which is limited to taking it for sales tax, may actually pass constitutional muster. It would depend on how the courts interpreted that part of the Constitution. But he says that that if they were to ban a practice like that, accepting a cryptocurrency for tax, it could have implications for other accepted practices, like uh, tax credit systems that are used by states.
0: How far along are these proposals in Arizona and Wyoming? Have they just been introduced? Or are they, you know, have already been kind of discussed in whatever committees they they, they have to go through? How far are they? It's early
3: days for both. The Arizona proposal was just introduced last week. The Wyoming proposal came under discussion at a, at a subcommittee hearing in Wyoming last week. And its sponsor said after uh, getting feedback from state agencies, speaking to other lawmakers, uh, what he wants to do is spend the next year or so talking more to stakeholders, tweaking his proposal and bringing it back next year. There are also some quirks to the way that the legislative calendar in Wyoming works, which mean that it would be much tougher to pass this year. It's it's what's called a budget session in in Wyoming, and there's a general session next year where laws like this one that's proposed are just easier to pass.
0: You may mention also in the article that there's other places, other states that are trying to, you know, maybe not do these exact same things, but just do more with cryptocurrency. Colorado, Tennessee, I think uh, uh, Miami Dade and Florida are examining similar possibilities with all this stuff. How has the crypto community responded to this?
3: Yeah, well, uh, as the cryptocurrency community so often does, it, it's reacted to with enthusiasm often when news arrives that another U.S. jurisdiction is looking at this possibility. There are also, you know, serious potential. Hurdles that mean that you know this is not something that's going to happen tomorrow. And there are other people outside of the crypto community, especially who are unenthusiastic about this prospect. Who say that there are a lot of potential downsides to eroding the position of the U.S. dollar. That it would make it harder for uh, regulators in Washington and central banks to effectively regulate the economy. That if it threatens the status of the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency, that that could harm the purchasing power of American households. Uh, And so this is likely to be something that if it goes down, it does not go down without a lot of debate.
0: Ben Schreckinger, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media,